The scripture reading this morning is Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. You can find it on page 1163 in the Pew Bible. Please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Impromptu special music there, but definitely words worth meditating over as we think of our great God and uh, the worthiness there is uh, for him to be praised. So thank you for all who've been leading us in music this morning. If you have your Bibles, or if you don't, there's also one in the rack in front of you. Go ahead and take those out and make your way to Philippians chapter 4. That's on page 1163. If you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you, the scripture will also be up on the screen behind me at different times this morning, so you can see it there. If you're just joining us for the first time this morning, I want to give you a special welcome. Glad that you are, are here with us. Uh, we are rounding the final stretch and heading into the last chapter of Paul's uh, letter to the ancient church in Philippi. It's called the Book of Philippians in the New Testament. We've been looking at it for several months. We've got a few weeks ahead of us yet, but we're coming into chapter 4. This book has often been known, long been known, for its emphasis on joy, uh, as reflected in our passage this morning, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. But as we've uh, seen and said before, the reason that Philippians is so full of joy is because it's so full of Jesus. The main thrust of this book, from one end to the other, is the gospel of Jesus Christ and our participation, our fellowship or partnership in that gospel message, both for our own personal lives and relationships and also as partners on mission for Christ and the advance of that gospel. We are to be a community that walks side by side on mission for Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 27, has been the summary exhortation of this book. We are to live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel in our relationships, in our discipleship, in our worship, and in our public witness. It is a beautiful calling that the church has. And it is a costly one because it means that if we are to be faithful and stand firm in our calling, it means following Jesus' pattern of dying to self, of laying down his life in sacrificial love and humility in order to make much of God. 
And so that is the call of this book. The question is what happens when, what happens to our mission, our purpose together, serving the Lord? What happens to that, to our focus and our mission, when disputes arise among us, within us, between the person here? right here in this congregation. What happens to the call we've been given to live as a community on mission for Jesus when division arises within? You know, a team that works together can withstand great opposition when everyone's doing their part. But when that bond within the team breaks, everything is at risk. You think of... uh, you imagine a basketball game where one player refuses to pass the ball to someone else on the team, even if they've got an open shot because of a personal grudge off the court. You know, that's not hard to imagine because it happens. You know, or, or imagine uh, you know, practicing hard all year long as part of an orchestra, and you come to opening night, and the, the principal cellist doesn't show because they had an argument with Someone in the flute section the night before. You know, it happens. You know, what happens when the team bond is broken within? The mission that the team has been called to is at risk of breaking down. And if that's true in those kinds of arenas, it's no less true for the church. As a community on mission for Christ, we face the daily temptation to let internal conflict divert our focus away from the outward cause of our mission to make Christ known to the glory of God. And the church in Philippi was just as susceptible to that threat. And that's why Paul is going where he's going at the beginning of chapter 4 to address a dispute between two women in that church who had been laboring side by side for the advance of the gospel but whose disagreement apparently threatened to impede that very work. And so this passage this morning, I hope for all of us, is a stark reminder that we never outgrow our need for the gospel of Jesus. We never outgrow our need for the grace of God in our lives and our relationships here. Rather, standing firm, as chapter 4, verse 1 tells us, or being faithful to our gospel mission in the world requires believing and applying the gospel to our relationships within. So being faithful to our mission as the people of God in Christ to bring the gospel to the nations, to our neighbors, that requires believing and applying that same gospel to our relationships right here, right here in the community. So... Let's pray together and seek God as uh, we look at this passage. Lord, this is your word, and that's what we want to hear this morning. We want to hear what your voice is saying by your spirit in your word to our hearts. And so, God, I pray that you would give each one of us a humble heart this morning to hear what you're saying. God, I pray that we would let our guards down as every single person in this room can think of instances and relationships that are strained for one reason or another. God, let us hear your voice this morning. What do you say to that? 
what's the way forward? Give us the grace of your spirit to depend on your gospel for every relationship that we might be faithful for your mission. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the reality is, somewhat sadly, very sadly, that as long as we wait for Christ's return and the resurrection to come, that chapter 3 ended with, verses 20 and 21, as long as we're waiting for that, as long as two sinners share the same space, breathe the same air, work on the same projects, attempt to relate to each other in any way, shape, or form, we will have conflict. We will have disagreements in friendships, in marriage, even in the church. We are sinners, after all. We're rescued. We're redeemed sinners if we have trusted in Christ personally. We're rescued, and we rejoice in that. But we are not complete. We have not arrived. We are still running the race of faith. And in the meantime, we will be tempted to cut each other, cut into each other's lanes, to even you know, trip each other or fight and claw and, and do whatever we want and can to accomplish our selfish desires. We're tempted to forget that we're running for the same team, for the same prize, and so we lose focus with respect to our mission. That means that leaders are going to disappoint. That means that ideas will be dismissed. People will be misunderstood. Contributions will be overlooked. Now, none of that is okay. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But it is, sadly, the way that it often is and will continue to be, at least in part, until the Lord returns. And we fool ourselves if we're not honest about that. You know, the world can see how hard it is for Christians to get along. In fact, uh, you know, I would venture to guess that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're here and you're exploring this thing called Christianity, trying to figure out what it is, whether or not to buy it, that one of the things, well, first I want you to know I'm glad you're here. Please, you know, you're welcome and I'm glad that you're here investigating that. And I hope you felt welcome. But one of the things I can almost guarantee you're asking yourself as you look around, as you meet people, is this. Are they real? Are they genuine? Or are they hypocrites? Are they saying one thing and then doing something completely else? Are they saying, you know, love your neighbor, and then you overhear a conversation in the bathroom about somebody talking behind someone else's back? You're not fooled. You're not fooled. You can see right into it. And just to dispel any lingering suspense, the answer is yes, we are hypocrites. Every blessed one of us. We say things and we do something completely different because we're sinners. And we are just as in need of the grace of God in Jesus as you are. We who believe in Christ are caught between two worlds, between two ages, the old world of the flesh where sin rules and fear motivates, 
and the new world of the Spirit that has dawned in Christ where grace rules and the Spirit of God empowers. And we live in between that meantime, in between those two worlds. So though we're forgiven and we're rescued in Christ, we're redeemed as God's people, we continue to face conflict with one another until the Lord returns. As the limerick goes, To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. The church is not immune from internal conflict. Not this church, not any church, and not the church in ancient Philippi. So in what's been a rather gushing letter up to this point, Uh, In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul now gets a bit uncomfortably specific. He addresses a conflict in the church, and he names names. Now, imagine being in that congregation, and Epaphroditus, whoever, arrives with a letter from Paul, and you're all gathered to hear this letter, and he gets to this point. Oh yeah, it's that awkward, you know. All of a sudden, he's calling out people. What is Paul doing? What's going on here? Why would he take that step, that risky step? Well, we're not told the precise nature of this conflict. We can safely assume that it's not a dispute over the essential doctrines of the faith. So it's not a dispute over what the gospel is. If it was, we would hear something much more similar to what we heard in 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. You know, if the gospel itself was at stake, Paul would have said something more like that or something akin to what he said to the church in Galatia in 1.6. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. So, Whatever the dispute is, it's not essential doctrine, but whatever it is, it affects more than just these two women. What's at stake is nothing less than the Philippian church's partnership in advancing the gospel of Jesus, in proclaiming Christ that others might know him. Notice how he describes these two women in verse 3. They have labored side by side, with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These are dearly beloved partners in the war to make Christ known. I mean, you can hear an echo of chapter 1, verse 27 in those verses, laboring side by side in the gospel. So the conflict's not about major things, but it's no less serious because of what's at stake because it threatens to distract or to divert their energy and attention to something other than their mission for Christ. How common is that? How common, you know, how sadly common is that kind of dispute? You know, how many churches have been divided over the color of the carpet or the strength of the coffee or the style of the music, while people outside are going to hell? How many churches have been divided over who gets to hold what office, 
or who gets to plan what event, or who gets to take home the leftover eggplant parmesan from Christmas dinner. You know, on second thought, I will fight for that one. But, you know, it all seems pretty petty, right? It's because it is petty. It's ridiculous. But it's no less a threat. And so Paul offers a passionate plea to both women. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And he's calling in reinforcements, you know, a third party to come alongside and help them to agree in the Lord. And he doesn't name this person. He refers to him as loyal yoke fellow. Not exactly a term of endearment we use to refer to each other today, but perhaps better, you know, true companion, my faithful co-laborer, my true partner. Help these women. That's his charge, to help these two women, these two partners in the gospel, to agree in the Lord. Now, what does Paul mean by that, though, to agree in the Lord? He's not saying, can't we just love each other and get along and just forget about all that nasty doctrine that divides? Paul's not saying that. Doctrine matters to Paul. What we believe about God is important, especially when it deals with salvation in Christ. So he's not saying that, but neither is he saying that we must agree on every nitpicky detail of doctrine or of life. You know, premillennialism or amillennialism. Public school, homeschool, or private school. Red carpet or blue carpet. <laughs> Who's with? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Joking. Rather, what Paul is talking about is the perspective that we should take. The perspective that we should take as we look at issues. He wants them to agree, or better, to think the same in the Lord. So, take the same perspective as you look at this issue in the Lord Jesus. He's taking a general instruction that he's already said several times in this book, 127 in 2.2, he's you know, asking them to walk with one mind, be of the same mind, of one mind. That's all the same word he uses here. And now he's applying that call to think the same to a very specific situation. And it's not so much even about thinking the same thing as it is thinking the same in the Lord Jesus. Having a common perspective that comes from Christ and that reflects his posture of humility and self-giving love. So, you know, you think of his exhortation back in chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude or your mind or your thinking, again, same word that's used here. Your thinking, your perspective, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who didn't count his equality with God something to be exploited for his own gain, died to self. So even if we disagree on something, the color of the carpet, the proper age or mode of baptism, we approach our discussion from the perspective of Christ, focused on the gospel of his grace, which is what unites us. 
the grace of God in Christ for sinners like us, and reflecting an attitude of humility and self-giving love. So what does that look like practically, though? How do we do that? What if I am absolutely and utterly convinced that our gathered worship really should look this way? Or that we need this kind of program for our youth? What if I hold that strong conviction? Or put it in the context of other relationships. Put it in the context of marriage. What if I'm positive that there really is a right and best way to defrost hamburger? Or to stack dishes? Or to squeeze toothpaste? You go from the bottom up, not the middle. You know, what, if we hold, how do we navigate these very crucial disagreements? Well, Paul goes on to offer three specific instructions and one beautiful result in verses 4 to 7. His first instruction is general, and we've heard it before in this book several times. He says it twice here. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And we've talked about this idea of rejoicing in the Lord in the past, but it's interesting that Paul brings it up again, and now in this context, and in such an emphatic way, he repeats it. He wants these two women, and of course he wants us, to rejoice in the Lord Jesus, to be joyfully satisfied and enthralled with Christ. To be joyfully satisfied and enthralled with Christ. He's not talking about a generic chipper disposition. He's talking about a joy that is anchored in the person of Jesus. A joy that's anchored in Christ himself. And he wants us to do this always. Always. At all times, in every situation, to find our satisfaction, our identity, and our delight. Not in all of these other things, but in Jesus Christ himself. He is our greatest treasure. This is where we see how being faithful to our gospel mission in the world requires believing and applying that gospel to our relationships within the church. It is the good news of Christ, who he is, what he's done for us, that frees us to love one another even when we disagree. We never outgrow our need for the gospel. By gospel, you know, the word means good news. It's the message of Scripture. It's the message of Christ. It tells us that left to ourselves, we are sinners. We are rebels against God's throne, traitors to his heavenly crown. God created us to be his children and servants of his kingdom. We committed treason instead. And treason against heaven is punishable by eternity in hell. It's bad news. And that's who we are apart from Christ. That's what we bring to God, nothing but our sin. But God came down to us, even though we couldn't do a blessed thing to make it up to him. God, in his compassion, in his mercy, in his faithfulness to his plan and his program, 
came down to us. He sent his eternal son, Jesus, to become human and to be the child and the servant that we failed to be. And some of you have maybe experienced you know, what it's like to be a failure before a parent. And it just never it feels like no matter what you can do, you can never make it up. That's who we are apart from God. But Christ came down to be the child, to be the obedient servant that we never could be and never will be by ourselves. He lived the life we couldn't live, and he took every disappointment, every failure, and every sin on himself to bear the punishment for our failure in our place, to free us of that guilt, to free us of that sin and its penalty. He took the full weight of hell on the cross for us. And then he rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death and brings new life, new life and hope to all who will believe. When you place your faith in Christ, not only does God forgive you your sins, not only does he wipe the slate clean, he adopts you into his own family and gives you a share in his eternal inheritance. So he takes you from the dungeon and he brings you to his dinner table as his beloved child. Not because you deserved a lick of it, but because of what Christ has done. That is joy and hope. That is a joy and hope that is incomprehensible. And it's entirely by God's grace. Grace is when God gives us something wonderful, even though we deserve something absolutely terrible. And so it's his favor toward those who deserve his wrath. That's what grace is. And that is how the gospel works. We don't make it up to God. We can't. But in his love and mercy, he rescues us through faith in his son. And we never outgrow our need for that grace. We never outgrow our need for the gospel. The same grace that rescues us is also what changes our hearts as we live day to day. As we have to share space with other people who sin against us and let us down, that same grace is what's at work to make that relationship happen. And as long as we're depending on the gospel, as long as we're delighting in Christ as our greatest treasure, our identity in him, then it's pretty hard to be arrogant or selfish toward one another. As uh, Don Carson puts it, if we fail to respond with joy and gratitude when we're reminded of these things, of the gospel, it's either because we've not properly grasped the depth of the abyss of our own sinful natures and of the curse from which we've been freed by Jesus, or because we've not adequately surveyed the splendor of the heights to which we have been raised. The gospel anchors our satisfaction in Christ, and it fuels a humility and joyful unity with one another. Now, there are some arguments worth having in the church. You know, if we find some among us who are trying to move us away from that gospel message, away from the essentials of it, that Christ died for sins, that salvation is by grace through faith in him, and that by believing you may have life in his name, or if someone's moving us away from orthodox 
Christianity, like beliefs in the Trinity or in the inspiration of Scripture or in the deity and humanity of Christ, these basic doctrines, well, then we need to have a conversation about that. We need to slow down and take a careful biblical look at those things. So there are some things that we need to give very careful critical attention to. But when it comes to secondary disputes, it's not that they're unimportant. It's not that these things don't matter and we should never talk about them. Now, they do matter, but they're not all important. And they're not worth dividing over. And usually, it's not really the secondary doctrine or the insubstantial opinions that divide us. Usually, what's at stake in those arguments is self. It's me, my opinion, my desire, my conviction. We fight so hard, not because the issue's worth parting over, but because we've bound our identity and our significance up in the issue. And so that to vindicate the issue is to vindicate me. And so I must fight because I'm at stake. And so it goes. That same thing happens in much of the conflict that we encounter in our marriages or in our friendships. We bind our identity and our significance up in the battle. And so we must fight to clear our name. And all of a sudden, we've actually given way to the very selfish ambition and vain conceit that Paul warned us against back in chapter 2. But when we believe and apply the gospel of God's grace for our sin to our own lives and relationships. And we recognize that our identity is in Christ and that all our satisfaction and significance is in him. Then as we've said before, if Christ is everything, then there's no room left for self. I can joyfully die on the issue. So first, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Be joyfully satisfied in Jesus. But then he goes on to tell us what that looks like more specifically in verses 5 and 6. He tells us first to be known for our gentleness or our reasonableness in such matters, and second, to turn our anxiety into prayer. To turn our anxiety into prayer. Verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. How do you respond when you don't get your way in a matter? Think about that. Are you grouchy? Do you obsess over it? Lose sleep? Check your email every five minutes to see if they've replied? Hijack every conversation and talk the matter into the ground? Does it cause you to grasp for control? So rally the troops and start a campaign to get your way. Do you manipulate others? Do you play the martyr, pointing out to everyone how much this decision cost you personally? That's exactly how my heart responds when I don't get my way. That's not a response that's trusting the gospel. That's not a response that looks like sharing a common perspective in 
Jesus. If we really see our own sin as utterly sinful, and God's grace in Christ is absolutely sufficient, then there should be a humility in our hearts that causes us to be known for our gentleness in disputes, our reasonableness, rather than our grouchiness or our edginess or manipulation. People shouldn't be afraid to disagree with us. We shouldn't have to walk on eggshells. They shouldn't have to walk on eggshells to keep us happy or hide behind policy to avoid our wrath. We should be approachable. We should be eager to listen, to learn, and to be corrected because we know we haven't arrived. We should follow the humility, gentleness, and reasonableness of Christ. And all the more because of the nearness of Christ. Paul says, you know, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, whether he's talking about Christ's presence among us by the Spirit, or whether he's talking about how soon it is till the Lord returns, it could be any time. You know, I'm not sure. Either way, Jesus is with us. Jesus is for us. Jesus is in us. All the more reason to be mindful of his presence and his coming as we interact with one another in the Lord. It keeps us on track and on our mission for the gospel. So be joyfully satisfied in Jesus. Be known for your gentleness. His third instruction Turn your anxiety into prayer. Turn your anxiety into prayer. So verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Yeah, that good one, Paul. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, we often apply that verse to all sorts of situations, and rightfully so. In everything, we are to take our concerns, our worries to the Lord. No matter what it is you're anxious about or worried about, God, the God of heaven, invites you to take that before him in prayer. You know, sometimes we think it's too small or insignificant. God doesn't want to waste his time with that. That is not true. What parent is bored with his child's request for a penny. You know, it's pretty cute. Kind of a penny. God loves answering the prayers of his children. He delights to do that. He's, there's no matter that's insignificant to him. So if it burdens your heart, it matters to God. Okay? And he invites us to bring those things to him specifically and gratefully in prayer. He's the God who cares about us, and he's the one who's actually powerful enough to do something about it. Whether that means changing the situation or sometimes just changing us. But, so everything, anything, bring it to the Lord if it burdens your heart. But let's not miss Paul's specific application here. Talking about disputes or disagreements with each other. Again, our default is to fight and to obsess over the matter. 
to stew on it, to claw for control. But holding on to a situation and obsessing over it is my personal statement that I don't trust God with the results. I have to hold on to this one. Or as a a friend of mine once put it, worry or anxiety is scraping your forehead against the brick wall of your own self-salvation program. Think about that. You're trying to move a brick wall. That's your self-salvation program. That's what you can accomplish by yourself. And worry, anxiety, is just scraping your forehead against it. It's a pretty painful metaphor. That's what we're doing. When we hold tightly to a matter instead of giving it to God, frankly, we drive ourselves and everyone else crazy. But when we give it to God, when we say, Lord, here's the issue. Here's how I feel about it. Here's why I feel I'm right. Here's what I want to see happen with it. And I give it all to you. This is your church. These are your people. This is your mission. Do as you please and give me the grace to love my brothers and sisters and to trust you with the results. When we give that matter to the Lord in prayer, there is a peace that, as Paul describes in verse 7, that defies understanding. That's the one beautiful result. The peace of God that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It is amazing how I can be so discouraged or upset, so anxious or even angry at someone, but when I go back to the gospel, my sin, God's grace, and I give my burdens to the Lord, the situation to the Lord in prayer, and I hand the results over to him, it is amazing how quickly love and affection are restored. How peaceful it is to wake up the next morning not thinking about the issue. When God's people take the gospel seriously in their relationships, God, he guards our hearts and our minds with his peace with his wholeness, his shalom, the peace that he won on the cross. It guards our hearts and our minds. It garrisons our perspectives, our affections toward one another. It guards us from self-centered distractions, and it keeps us focused on our mission. And that is the goal, to serve faithfully on mission for Christ The church is a called-out, set-apart people. We have been saved for a purpose, to bear witness to Christ, to take this joy and grace and hope and peace that we have come to know and, and to tell others about it, that they might, too, know what it's like to be forgiven and to have hope and to know God. It's our calling to bear witness to Christ in the Metro West, in New England, to the ends of the earth. God forbid that we ever let arguments about the color of the walls 
or the size of the pulpit distract us from the fact that roughly 2% of people in New England attend a gospel-preaching church. That's it. 2%. God forbid that we ever let disputes over youth programs or ministry budgets cause us to forget that one out of every six people in New England don't believe in God, let alone Christ. That the majority of people you rub shoulders with in the grocery store or at work are facing a Christless eternity in hell. God forbid we ever exert more energy arguing over the music we sing than we do wrestling in prayer for our unsaved neighbors. May we never, ever, ever lose sight of the gospel, of who we are in Christ, of our union with him, and the joy of peace with God, a peace that so many people don't know. May we never lose sight of the reality of our sin, of the sweet sufficiency of God's grace, of the peace we have with God through the blood of Christ, May that guard our souls in the bitterest trials and the darkest nights with the light of the grace of God. And may that free us. May that free us to serve faithfully as God's humble servants, to make Christ known to the glory of God. That is my prayer. I believe that's Paul's prayer in this passage for his people. So let's pray together. Lord, so much is at stake. And we are so unfit and unworthy for the task. Your name is worthy to be praised. And our hearts are war against that. War against it in the way that we think, in the way that we interact with each other. We are so prone to being caught up in ourselves, Lord. God, we thank you for the grace of Jesus that cleanses us even in that moment. We thank you for the peace of God that Christ won on the cross. May that peace truly Guard our hearts toward one another. May it guard our minds. May we be reminded that our sin has been dealt with. That you are not an angry father who looks down on us in disappointment for having messed up one more time. But that you look on us and you see the beauty and the sacrifice of your son. May our hearts well up with such joy at that prospect that we can't help but love one another and lay our lives down and that we can't help but stay focused on the task you've called us to, this impossible task of being a witness to the God of the universe who's made himself known by the Spirit in the face of Jesus Christ. But God, you can do that, and so we pray that you would do it and that our souls would be at rest in you 
that we might walk faithfully and joyfully as your people. God, do it among us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.